people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. This is the color of black, baby. It's a whole lot different than white. I'm a devil. He's a goddamn devil, man. What kind of giant is that? You let that devil sit all of goddamn lives on Hey, baby. Ten and three? Oh, man. Why you gotta put me through all this? You know the going rate is twenty and three. Okay, twenty and three. Welcome home, Brother Charles. You done the man's time. Now you're gonna do ours. Hey, baby, what's happening? Hey, man, you telling me to wait, man? Let the biggest dope push in all of Sunnyside in California out on the streets again? Hey, baby, damn! And I'll take it off. Oh, baby, that's a deal. Dirty, slimy bastard! That's why I meet a man the first chance I get. Welcome home, Brother Charles. A motion picture about the way it is and the way some people think it should be. That kind of hatred brings on mania. Look, I didn't come here to be called a maniac, Doctor. Now, a man damn near cuts my manhood off. Now, what am I supposed to do? Nothing? Tell him to come downstairs. Come down for a moment, dear, please. What's the matter, honey?
I get back, I'll jump. I'll jump. Hold it. Welcome home, Brother Charles. They tried to take everything, even his manhood. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Jackie Stewart. Hey, great to be back, Mike. Also back in the booth is Mr. Gary Phillips. Thanks for having me back. We conclude Black History Month with a look at Jama Fanaka's Welcome Home, Brother Charles. Released in 1975, it's the story of our titular brother Charles, played by Marlo Monti. He's picked up by the police and possibly castrated, maybe, for being too uppity. Amid the crime and corruption of mid-70s Los Angeles, we follow Charles as he's railroaded into jail and swears vengeance upon his release. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Welcome Home, Brother Charles, please turn off this podcast and go watch it. We will still be here. So, Gary, when was the first time you saw this movie, and what did you think, sir? The first time I saw it is when you sent it to me. Wow, really? Oh, boy, I can't wait to hear your reaction. I, I had seen <laughs> some of other Mr. Fanaka's uh, films. Of course, you know, the penitentiary uh, cycle, like I think I guess everybody knows uh, of him through that. Uh, but yeah, man, this was, uh, as I said, I was actually surprised. Not only was I surprised that of the film itself and that, uh, I know somebody in the film, uh, Sam and Graffia, I actually know two people. Well, I, I, one of them I know slightly, but I know, uh, two of the camera operators at the end of the credits, you see Charles Burnett's uh, name and you see Ben Caldwell and I, Ben Caldwell, who's, who, I mean, both of course are still around. Uh, making films, but Ben in particular, I know, uh, he runs a lovely uh, community organization here in uh, L.A. called uh, Chaos Network, and they do a lot of work around filmmaking and, and pop culture and, and uh, accessibility, etc. Anyway, all that to say is that, yes, yeah, so it was uh, it was quite a treat <laughs> being uh, having some knowledge of what the film was about. I mean, that I had some knowledge of from, I guess, from some years ago, uh, but still being able to see the film uh, in all its uh, uh, all its glory, was uh, it was pretty good. Hey, Jackie, how about you? It was one that was sort of a legend for years. I, it's the unfortunate downside is that the reputation of the movie precedes itself, and the big surprise is sort of what everyone knows beforehand. Uh, so I'd known for years what I was going to get out of the movie, but I I figured the best possible way to, you know, give myself that introduction is to prepare for a show like this. So I only recently watched it knowing all too well the basis of what to expect. And I figured getting away to discuss it with you guys would probably be the most interesting way to go about it. And it is similarly, I was familiar with Jamal Fanaka particularly because I, I've seen the first two penitentiary films. I still need to see the third one because those were back in the early days of Netflix streaming when they were, they would show interesting stuff that, that nobody else would would carry at the time, or they could because you know they they were still fighting with all the all the big distributors. So I saw the the penitentiary movies on there and a whole bunch of weird stuff. And I mean, that, like those felt like a a wild time when streaming was interesting instead of just the only option that we had left. So I I knew the name. I knew that he made some very you know interesting, very like singularly voiced stuff. And seeing a student film of his knowing. <laughs> knowing where it's going to go. I, I could not pass up the opportunity to talk about it with you guys. Yeah, this was actually first time watch for me as well. I, again, knew the reputation, uh, the kind of notorious uh, reputation of this film. 
And I was honestly really pleasantly surprised by just how well put together this movie is because I was afraid, oh, geez, this is, you know, it was a student film that was shot on weekends and things. And, you know, maybe Fanaka was too ambitious for what he wanted to do, but I don't think so. I think he really pulled this together. And I really think that Marlo Monti does a great job. I mean, so many of these like lower budget films just live and die by the performances. And yeah, there's a couple like clunky lines, but I think that's more the the writing than the performance, because I think the performances are pretty solid, especially Marlo Monti. And this whole movie is on his shoulders. I was very happy with what they did with it. Now, I'm a little confused by a couple of things here and there, like reading reviews and it's like, oh, well, this happened and this happened. I'm like, I didn't get that. Like, there are a couple of things along the way where I'm going to be like, is that what you guys got? Because I didn't necessarily get this. But so it's kind of like held together by hopes and dreams sometimes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but overall, you know, it's it's pretty cool. And especially that we start with, you know, our main character on this ledge. And this cop talking to him, just like, you know, hey, I'm here to help you, da-da-da-da-da. They bring this woman along on top of this roof, and it's like, oh, well, here's your girlfriend, and she's going to help us out. And then we go to a flashback, or we, we, we flashback to the whole beginning of the story. And so this whole movie is basically a flashback leading to that moment back on the roof, which I always appreciate that, especially like, okay, well, how did this happen? And it was really nice when you suddenly realize, oh, we're about to meet up with the beginning of the movie. And you never know how long the flashback or how long the present is going to last after that. It could be like a J.J. Abrams thing where it's always like, you know, like two thirds of the way through that third act is in the present, but the rest was in a flashback. But this one, it's like, I'd say 95%, 98% is flashback. And the other 2% is just this wrapper on either end and it's very effective the way that he does that yeah where the beginning of the movie is the end of the movie you just get everything right in the middle of it and we get to meet all of these characters you know there's charles there's twyla i mean i was a little confused at times and i'm not saying this you know I, i'm going to say this is going to sound super racist but allow me to finish i was very confused by who was who in this movie a lot of times people looked alike to me but that was both the black people and the white people. Because there were a couple times where I was like, how many cops are there? Is that guy with the beard? Like, the guy with the beard is the same as this guy, but he didn't have enough hair. And so who is it? So there were a couple times where I was like, okay, now is Charles a pimp? Or there's, no, it's this other guy who's the pimp. Right. Charles is the drug dealer. Although Yeah, Charles is the drug dealer. That's right. Well, he's somewhat low level. He's not really uh how is it that Charles and... <laughs> And the wife of the cop get together. But, all right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right, we'll go with that. We'll roll with that. It was a case where I feel like a second viewing was almost necessary just to, because it helped piece together, not not really plot convenience necessarily, but but just where everyone kind of, oh, like, oh, that's the judge? He's doing what now? All right, all right. Right, right, right. That's, right. right. that's the guy we saw in the beginning, right? That's right. Yeah, because okay. I had, right. the, right. the first time, yeah, I'd completely forgotten about that guy by the time yeah. it got to the courtroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like the prosecuting attorney, I was glad that they gave us a flashback to the prosecuting attorney because I was like, oh, okay, because I wasn't really sure. Yeah, and same thing with the judge. I was glad they're like, oh, see, he was this guy. And I'm like, oh, all right, all right, I got it now. There's the pimp, who's another guy. There's Charles, who's the low-level drug dealer. But isn't the pimp his buddy? 
Yeah, well, the pimp is his buddy, but it's not Peanuts, though, right? Because there's a guy who's like really gregarious and his friend, but then there's there's the pimp has like the sunglasses, I think. Well, I guess so because when he because when Charles gets out of jail, is is it Peanuts who shines him on? Sort of. It's not Peanuts. It's the other guy. No, no. What he goes to Peanuts' house and Peanuts is really super nice to him and tells him about like where Twyla's working at and she's over at this bottomless club. I guess it was. I was like. Okay, that that's a way to to put it. Yeah, the the other guy, I'm trying to remember his name. It's not JD. Indy is what yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. There you go. Indy. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I just straight up didn't didn't even bother getting names the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered faces and went along with that. Right. That's it. Well, I had to look on IMDb to get some some of the names so I could be clear about, you know, yeah, who was who. Well, yeah, when he said Peanuts' his name, I was just like, did he just call him Peanut, or what am I hearing here? Because there's Twyla, but then there's the other other lady. So, like, Twyla's the one who's a stripper and used to be a prostitute, but then there's the other lady who ends up being, like, Charles's girlfriend, and I don't think she's a stripper. I don't think she's a former prostitute. She seems like she's got her life a little bit more together. I've been thinking about this movie in a lot of ways, right? So as as we know, you know, uh, as we've all uh, hinted around the big, <laughs> the, the reveal, as it were, toward the end, the anaconda of death. Was it because it started as, a, a, uh, is this his thesis film? Was this was his this thesis film? I think it was, yeah. And I guess maybe that was part of the constraints, so you couldn't really go full porn, right? Softcore porn, presumably, right? But it is interesting that it walks this really strange, interesting line. In fact, I had a brief discussion with, speaking of, I mentioned Ben Caldwell as one of the camera operators. Uh, and so and so Ben's recollection is that it was he and uh, Jamal were talking about, you know, the perceptions of black men. And of course, it's what, you know, the film gets into, a la uh, Sweet Sweetback. And that's how then we, we get to this to this film, uh, uh, Welcome Home, Brother Charles, which is interesting in, the, in that, you know, some of the film, like Charles, when he gets out, he seems so, it's interesting to me that in some cases he seems very, um, he's not bitter, right? He's, or seemingly he's not bitter. I mean, he is bitter, but that seems to sort of come on at a, a kind of at a stage, right? Because initially he doesn't seem, to me, he seems to almost not have any drive when he gets out of prison. It, it's not like he's looking for revenge or it's not like he's immediately looking for revenge. It seems that the idea of revenge kind of comes to him at a stage. To your point, when he gets out, he goes, he visits Peanut, he just has like, uh, you know, he kind of catches up with some people. And then next thing you know, I think it's, is it him that's shooting heroin? Because we get this shot of like needle going into a yeah, vein. Yeah, I don't think it was and him. Then, was it him? Was it? Yeah, I yeah. just took okay. that as, as just random people on the street. Right, just, okay. like, they, right. They cut yeah. through so many people. That was honestly, you know, like all the, all the visuals that stand out in this movie, that was the one that caught me off guard <laughs> i was like they just played it like it was your regular you know cool street montage but it started with yeah just needle straight in the arm it's fine <laughs> blood on the street and charles is, is looking i mean initially he's looking for a square gig right i mean he's not you know right he's just trying to you know make a living and and not go back to that to that uh that, the life that he lived lived before uh and, and, and there's a bit of uh you do see a bit of a, a kind of a I believe it's a kind of a montage of his transformation in prison. Not not like Malcolm X, but but still he, he is transformed to some extent. Oh, and I love that whole 
montage of the still images and then the desaturated how they're like it's not not black and white it's more like blue and white and then some of the images i think are actual like film like moving and then others are just stills and i thought that was really well done what if in 2023 you try to remake this movie right you, you know you try you know what i mean whether you said it now or said it then i mean i guess there's really no way you could do it right I, well, certainly there's no way you could do it as a um well, maybe there's a way. I don't know. I don't know if you can do it. I don't know if you can't do it. I, mean, I it's it's interesting to me to think about it because I, because then I, I started you know going down that rabbit hole, and it was funny too because I was thinking about the sequels and, I, and so I looked up the cop right. So so he's stooping Freeman's wife, who's Christina. I looked up the name or I looked up her name in the cast. Uh, she's played by a young lady named Tiffany something. But anyway, but remember there's a sequence where it was, and I think it happens after the fact. After the the attempted castration, where isn't he dealing with this? And somehow another. I mean, they both him and his buddy are both ice cops, and yet somehow they're doing dealing with a bomb at the at LAX, right? And he's and he's running with the briefcase, and maybe he's getting irradiated, or maybe he's not getting irradiated. I'm not quite sure. But that isn't that that happens after he attacks Charles, right? Yes, yes, it does, and that's being cross cut with. Charles fucking that guy's wife. Yes. Okay. So it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, this guy's uh, risking his life. Charles is banging his wife. That, that's right. There you go. That. Okay. There we go. He's banging the missus. That's right. That's right. Cross cut with that with the beautiful footage of the the airplane taking off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I kept waiting for the bomb to go off to be the orgasm. So that does happen. Right. That's right. So that does happen before he tries to castrate. The castration scene is earlier than that. Yeah, that's what it's, I thought. It, that's just, what I, thought. I, I just just rewatched it, and I was confused about the order of order of events there. <laughs> that first twenty minutes or so, the first time around, it's hard to to get a real grasp of exactly what's happening if you're not paying. Like if you look away for a second and you look back, it's like a whole different scene is going on every time. And so I I say all that to say. You know, in the, in the remake or in the underground graphic novel version, I would want the bomb radiation bomb scene to happen before, only because now you see in the in the and now now I'm by the way I've, I'm I'm also linking this to how Luke Cage, you know, Luke Cage in the comics in '72, you know, gets his powers through an experiment in prison, right? And so apparently, uh, brother brother Charles gets his power. Because his his uh, member is reattached in prison or at least in jail. Anyway, all that to say is that if Freeman were to deal with the radiation bomb earlier and to use his knife, like let's say, just for the sake of this argument, and to you know help somehow de- make the bomb uh, inoperable, and he's got to you know cut wires with the knife or whatever it is. So on the Marvel Comics version, you know that knife would become the irradiated object, right? So then when he tries to cut Charles, it's the radiation you see that gives him the special. The special powers. So I, I that was I was just thinking about that in terms of I, want, I would want to clean that sequence up just so we're we're clear how he got that power. <laughs> and then of course I I would assume because we do start with the African statue imagery in the title sequence with that great theme that they play. Yeah. So somehow that I think you got to wrap that in there too. Maybe the doctor who works on him, you know, maybe the statue is there in the in the uh, the operating room or at least in the doc's office or something. So we kind of you know tie those that imagery and that, that symbolism together. 
Yeah, the order of events is strange. Even the idea of, is he castrated, is he not castrated? Because I think later on in the movie they say he was castrated. And I was like, I didn't really get that from that scene. Yeah, I just thought the guy took a knife to it. I didn't think about removal. Exactly. Yeah, because I think even then his partner says something like, you you were about to do it or you almost did it. And I thought there was some um, you know, qualifier as opposed to, yes, he really did it. When the husband, Freeman... He confronts his wife. That's when the dialogue for me gets really kind of overwrought. Uh, might be a little gory for you, though. What, another vicious rape case? No, no, no. Much worse than that. Oh, well, nothing's worse than rape. It's about this guy. He's, he's married. Married a few years. Two kids. Nice house, couple of cars. You know, all the things that uh, make up a nice, happy home life. The little uh, wifey, uh, she's dissatisfied. Did she come to hobby about her dissatisfaction? Hmm? She goes out, shacks up behind his back. You want to know what tore him apart? Well, the guy she was shacking up with turned out to be a dirty, thinking, no good, don't push a nigga! Dirty, slimy bastard! You didn't have enough manhood to face me straight off. No, you had to go through some goddamn silly pantomime because you're not enough of a man. That's why I meet a man the first chance I get. Because no matter how many Mickey Mouse bombs you disarm, it isn't going to make you any more of a man than that shriveled up thing down there declares you. But just like the way that she's denigrating him and his, what she call it, like that shriveled up thing between your legs kind of thing. I just like, oh, this is a little clunky here. Yeah. And, and they stay together. And that's the other thing. It's not like she's, it's not like they get a divorce. <laughs> I mean, she's still there when he gets out of jail, for God's sakes. <laughs> and then they have this like kangaroo trial of just putting him on. And that's where we see the judge. And we saw the judge earlier trying to pick up one of the prostitutes. I think it might have been Twyla. And then we've got the, you know, the prosecuting attorney who's a real blowhard. And yeah, they shoot him right into jail. And when we get into jail, that's when that theme comes back. We've got that desaturated footage, the kind of legete use of the still images, which was really cool. And then he gets out. And like you said, he tries to make that good life for himself. And yeah, it really does feel like he's getting so frustrated because his girlfriend is able to hold a steady job and he's unable to do anything. And then it was kind of funny because when he starts his plan of vengeance, he starts to take on different medial roles like, oh, I'm the telephone repairman or I'm the guy with the, the water bottle and all this kind of stuff. Oh, that's right. But I thought, oh, that's, that's straight out of 70s porn, right? The, the, you know, the pizza delivery man, the, the repairman comes by and then he winds up, you know, hanging the housewife. So, yeah, there you go. Well, I like I appreciated that too because, like, later on in the movie, when you know he's you know he's sneaks out on 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 his girlfriend to go on his path to revenge, and he tells her he was he was just out looking for jobs, and so this every time he's doing that, he's just playing work to get something done. 
I didn't look at the time code to see how far along it takes, but really it's when he shows up at, I think it's Freeman's wife that he goes to first as the telephone repairman. And he comes in and it almost feels like she doesn't recognize him at first. And, and, and he basically like takes down his pants and next thing you know, boom, she's got this vacant look on her face and she is just completely literally hypnotized by his cock exactly and exactly. he just starts to give her all these instructions and she is helpless she's completely helpless because of looking at this man's cock and it's amazing does this johnson have a big eye on it is that what it is you know what i mean in the remake come on man you gotta you know it you know that it, it you know moves like a cobra yeah maybe you know it's I mean? swinging like a pendulum but... exactly exactly you know, to be fair, now that also means you got to use it on men too, right? He can't just use it on women. Like, we got to be play, play fair. You got to, you know what I mean? It's all good. <laughs> I picture it like going up to her ear and whispering in her ear. Exactly. Like a puppet. That's it. That's right. Oh my God. Oh yes. You know, it's her and Freeman in bed together. She just wakes up, goes downstairs. And that locks lets the door, him in. Right? And lets him in. Yeah. That's right. That's lets it. Let's him in. And then we just get the... The, the screams of Freeman and that look on Charles's face and then like cross cutting to the wife who just again is completely deadpan, but just, we don't know. Like the first time I watched it, of course I did know what was going on, but I was just like, as an audience member, the first time seeing this, you would have no idea you what the no hell's idea. going right. on That's right. right now. That's right. That's right. Exactly. The, it did play some theaters, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, so that you got to think, well, what, I mean, how did you gotta had a different argument, man? It's like, well, how did he sell this movie to these to these distributors? I mean, or at least even if he's just doing it himself, right? Four walling it, right? With the, you know, like, oh my god, I think I would, you know, you know, talk about the midnight show, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, to be a fly on the wall of that like first unsuspecting audience. Said, <laughs> so, holy moly, what's wait? What are we watching here? Ah, <laughs> uh, like even even knowing what to expect the whole time, you're going, they're not really going to do that, right? And, so, and I like it. And by the way, and by the way, Mike, I love the I love the article you sent us. Where I guess at least one one of the uh, um, ads has a it's a jawbreaker. Charlie's back in town to get his piece of action. Holy moly, man! Is it all? Yeah, well, there. I guess that that describes the film to a T. That, that's yeah, all. Can't all argue there. with the word of it. <laughs> right? Can't argue with the word of that. Nope. That's a, that's some truth in advertising there, boy. I tell you. I almost wish that there were more people for him to get his revenge on because exactly. it's the well exactly exactly yeah, cause, exactly because he's already defeated by the second guy he oh, ends yeah. up getting yeah. into that yeah. uh, prosecuting oh, attorney oh, no. listen man we gotta have a scene of him swinging you know <laughs> by that bad boy you know escaping over the rooftops like daredevil you know what I'm saying it's got to... <laughs> listen man the remake would be so wrong on so many levels. But it would be just so much fun. <laughs> be like a fucking pogo stick. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hilarious. All kinds of things you can do with that bad boy. Come on. And it's one of the weirdest ways to go, too, just because it takes a long time for him to get fully erect, you know, longer than John Holmes. And the guy, the prosecuting attorney, is just like, ah, I mean, he's just backing into the wall because, I mean, Exactly. What, what is you know what, what is the the small white man more afraid of than the black man's big dick? <laughs> Jesus Christ! All he could do is try to back up. 
Exactly. He, he, he cover couldn't for take it. his cover eyes off it. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and also, maybe a bit on the nose, but I couldn't help but notice it. Like, it couldn't have been unintentional that the officer that pulled all this shit was uh, named Officer Freeman. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So he manages to kill that guy. And then when he goes after the judge, that's when the, you know, the, the quote unquote good cop, like the one who left the scene when his partner was trying to castrate Charles. And I like how he was like, Hey, yeah, what the hell Pontius Pilate? You're going to wash your hands and walk away. (laughs) Yeah. The the good cop who dared to say, Hey, are you sure about that? Uh, Let him do it. Exactly. Right. (laughs) You sit. Thanks, pal. Thanks for helping me out. Just a couple bad apples, right? Come That's on. right. Just a couple bad apples. That's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's it, man. I tell you. Oh, oh man. But man. yeah, he he is the one that goes to his psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist is talking about Charles totally breaking patient That's uh, right. therapist That's right. confidence. Yeah, oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. And then he uh, tells him about this dream that Charles had where he was able to do this with his Johnson, but... And so then the, it, the light goes off over the guy's head. He's just like, all right, got to go save the judge. <laughs> of all things, I did appreciate with that, the psychiatrist, though, hearing something that I feel like I still hear constantly today, you know, when he tells the the officer, like, hey, you know, I'm, you know, my services are open, you know, all the time. And the cop's like, well, I don't need any of that yet. And he's like, that's where you're wrong. Pretty much everybody does. And they don't even know it. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, that's a surprisingly open minded thing that even now people are having trouble wrapping their heads around. <laughs> I, I tell you, man, this is not, really, I, I, I guess I can't get out of, <laughs> out of the notion, uh, the, the idea that, man, to try to remake this film, you know, uh, I just think, oh, man, I, you know, it was just. I thought about it, too, because I realized that, like, I was thinking, is there any way you could retell this story? And is there any other movie where you could get away with just that one, the, the twist in the one scene? And then just, because, like, most of this movie stands pretty well on its own is just kind of a pretty serious drama about a guy getting back, you know, getting his life back and maybe, maybe going on a little revenge on the side. And that one scene comes out of nowhere and then the movie just continues. <laughs> and I was thinking like how many movies there, there is no other movie in history where you could just throw that. At you. Like you can't just go through like two thirds of a death wish movie and then have Bronson grow a giant dick and kill somebody with it and then finish the death wish. Movie. Yeah, the finish, the finish, that's right. That's right. But, but you know, just got to keep going. That's right. That's right. You know, it was just another instrument in his toolbox, as it were. That's that, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Oh, but, 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 you know, listen, Jackie, that might be it. That might be it. You know that you're right. That Charles, uh, right. So to to Mike's point, you have obviously you want a, a more people for him to to uh, go through, as it were, to you know to, to exact his revenge. And if he does different methods of death, and then you know, like you said, like toward the end of the movie, all of a sudden, you know, like there's a giant anaconda thing. Strangling the guy, and you go, "What? Wait, where'd that come from?" <laughs> oh, and I love the way they film it, like the between the legs, and you see it descend it's down. It's you're just like, exactly. is that what I think? That's it what is? I think it is. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Right? That's right. And they don't even say anything about it. Like at the end, it's like you know, the guy's like, "Hey, I know you've got these physical problems, but don't worry. You know, we'll find a cure or something." You know, it's like trying to talk the Hulk down, you know, don't worry, David, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fix it. Puny batter. Hulk is always puny batter. I don't want to be puny batter. I want to be the Hulk. Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? Yeah, and so our, our, our quote-unquote hero cop shows up, and that's when we rejoin the movie, and we go back up to the roof, and when they bring out uh, Charles's girlfriend, 
you know, you're expecting her to be like, Charles, you know, it's okay, you know, we'll work this out, yeah. you know, they want you to be safe, yada, yada. And instead, just her going, jump. And I'm like, holy shit. And then fucking freeze frame on her and then pull up this title card of let them indulge their pride in thinking I am destroyed. It is a comfort to them. Let it be. And I'm like, holy shit, man. Making the way for for the sequel, man. I'm, t- I'm telling you, he used that bad boy to swing down off that roof. We wrapped that bad boy around that bar. You yeah. Know, you know, bar. Yeah, right. Good for repelling, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Out, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just do a lasso around the flagpole. Exactly. And... Exactly. Did either of you watch the original trailer for it? Because it shows the whole damn movie. It's, it's yeah. wildly it's like four and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like four and a half minutes, and it literally ends with her yelling to jump. <laughs> like that's the whole movie right there, except for you know the scene. <laughs> I was I was just shocked. When I open up this episode, it's going to be the radio trailer that I use, which is much more effective, I think. And it's like a minute, maybe minute and a half, and just gets right to it because. Yeah, they even did this on uh, trailers from hell, and the guy's just like, eh, it's not that good of a movie, but let's just skip to the end where it's the big cock, and it's like, there is a little bit more to this movie. I feel it's- like uh, I feel like that says a lot about society for you, though. <laughs> That's right. That's it. So these parallels, right? So, of course, I was, like I said, I was thinking about, you know, Luke Cage and how, you know, Luke Cage gets his power also from, uh, uh, well, I mean, uh, I guess... We're not quite clear how Brother Charles gets his power exactly, but you know, I'm, like I said, I'm on the irradiated tip. So of course, you know, Cage gets his power uh, from a actually it's, it's a it's a racist uh, guard. Cage volunteers for his experiment in prison, but the racist guard uh, knocks the scientists out and you know ups the uh, ups the amperage as it were to you know try to kill Cage because he and the, his guard have gone at it, and then of course it's upping the amperage that gives Cage his uh, steel hard steel hard uh, skin and uh, super strength. And, but I was thinking, so there's another interesting character, not from comics, but this, there was a series of uh, books, uh, paperback originals in the early 70s, so a few years before uh, this movie. So like 71 and 72, this, there was like six books about a character called, I, I, and I have a couple of them sitting somewhere, or maybe I have them in storage with my, my so-called collection. It was a character called Richard Abraham Spade, a.k.a. Super Spade. It was a black character written by a black writer. Uh, Super Spade was, was, I guess, a bit more intellectual than Shaft, but kind of in the Shaft mode. But he had a superpower, not not necessarily this monster Johnson, but he uh, could uh, he could release uh, a kind of some kind of um, hyper pheromone. So it would make uh, women go weak in the knees for him. So when he wanted to, right, when he needed to, right, you know, during his investigation, uh, he would he would release this thing, you know, release this power uh, over 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 the women. So I, I was thinking about that. So I was thinking about it in the context of, of Brother Charles. So again, you know, in the remake, maybe maybe he would control that kind of pheromone, or maybe the maybe <laughs> maybe a giant dick would talk and would release it. I don't know. But anyway, all, it's all, all that stuff was sort of in my head when I when I keep thinking about the movie. I mean, that's, you know, that's what they used to tell us. That they had to embrace the power of jazz music to do back in the day. <laughs> it's funny to me because so much of this stuff is still with us. I mean, and I think that historically this whole thing of black guys have huge cocks and they just like basically hypnotize the women. They're going to steal all the white women away and all this kind of thing. 
I mean, I don't know how long that's been going on, but I want to say at least 150 years here in the United States. Yeah, give or take. Yeah, give or take. Yeah, yeah something yeah, like that, if not yeah. more. And then you got, uh, you know, like now you go out to like Pornhub or X Hamster and you're just like BBC all over the fucking place. And just like the the way that the right wing had had adopted the whole like calling somebody a cuck for a long time. And it's just like, well, you're not just talking about cuckolding somebody. You're talking about cuckolding somebody with a black guy and like just making the the, the black man just a piece of meat. You know, exactly. It's so denigrating. Exactly. exactly. And so it's like super racist. All all oh, types in a, in a of things. Really <laughs> strange and weird and twisted. Right. Right. Sexual weird way. Like apparently, you know, and I, well, he's never gonna listen to this, but I guess he's admitted this, right? Roger Stone, the big, uh, you know, uh, uh, GOP hack guy, apparently has, you know, paid uh, 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 black men to service his wife, and he watches it. I mean, you know, so it's all, so you're right, and he's the guy that has got the big tattoo of Nixon on his back, right? So it's like, man, what do you, what, how do you compartment, how do you make sense of any of this, man? It's it's such a weird and, and, and twisted kind of thing, yeah. Oh, it's, it's pretty hard being a racist piece of shit, so. <laughs> you know, if anybody's got it tough, it's them. <laughs> yeah, you got to do so many mental gymnastics to make it all make sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of Nixon, did anybody notice uh, the scene where, was it was it, uh, was it Twyla that was dancing in the, the two-piece? And there was, a, there was a poster behind her, and it looked like Richard Nixon, but with a devil face sitting on a toilet and i really really want to get a better look at what that poster was oh that's, it that's great incredible. Dave, totally that's great though of course i'm sure that must be yeah that's, that's perfect of course yeah of that, course. that's some of the best set set decoration i've ever seen in right, my on. Life. <laughs> right on right on oh uh, it, not now you just reminded me just to back up for another second nixon nixon made, brought me back to uh top of the heat this brings me back to super spade who i just mentioned uh which is written by uh joe green under the B.B. Johnson was the was the pseudonym. But Joe Green had an interesting career, apparently. He was like a musician and, and wrote very B.B. Johnson? Big Black Johnson? Uh, uh, that was that was the <laughs> that was the pseudonym that he used, sir. I I, I, I I just passed those things along. It's not me. Okay. All right. Sorry. You just like said it so nonchalant. <laughs> How could I not? Um but Joe Green, apparently, because I was reading about uh on my uh friend. Kevin Smith's Thrilling Detective site, which is where I went back to look up about uh, Super Spade. So Joe Green apparently did some uncredited writing on top of the heat. How about that for a small world after all? So there you go. I really liked the sequence that we were talking about earlier uh, that starts with that kind of disconcerting heroin abuse, but then goes into almost like documentary footage of just people on the streets and get to see Charles in front of the Watts Towers, but then you just, like, kind of go around, it's like, you know, this guy dancing, these people just drinking on the street, and, you know, they're just kind of like, you know, like little kids, just kind of like slice of life stuff, and I was like, that's really cool, and, like, it was a good way to, you know, lengthen the movie out a little bit, but also it was just, like, such a nice time capsule of, like, exactly. here's well, LA in 74-ish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, as soon as that guy started dancing with the camera, I was like, oh, this isn't they they don't they don't know they're in a movie, do they? <laughs> I think he just turned the camera on on some people and got some good footage out of it. The, the scope of this, I think, you know, you mentioned that this was kind of like his thesis film, and I think it was supposed to be a lot shorter. But Fanaka's just like, no, no, I'm going to do a feature. You know, I've already done a short. I I'm, I want to do a feature now. It was just like, 
so ambitious. And I think that was his whole thing was just like pushing, 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 and always trying to like do, do better with his next one. And so, you know, he would ju just kept improving his craft every single film. And, and because this is no slouch, man, this is, a, I would not be disappointed. And it's funny, right? Uh, did, did any of these folks ever go on? Uh, well, Sam does, yeah. But uh, th do we know that uh, others in the in the movie? I guess, I guess, uh, uh, Monty never did nothing else, right? Is that true? I don't think he did. Yeah, no. I couldn't find anything. And I and I thought, you know, he's really what holds that movie together. Like, yeah, yeah. No, I thought he had. I thought there was time when he really is. You know, this verb. And I thought, oh well, yeah, this cat, you know, it's got something going on. You know, yeah, yeah. like he had a great voice, a great delivery. Like he was a natural with everything. When he flipped that switch where there are those moments, you know, where like the women are in trance, but he's kind of in a trance too. And he's just staring at the camera and he gets all sweaty and like this dude had it, but that we only got to see it one time. It's a damn shame. The woman that played Carmen, the, uh, his girlfriend, she went on to do, uh, Aretha Gray. I think her name is, she was in at least 75 things, including an episode of the Upshaws that just came I'll be, out. I'll be there. Well, right on. Excellent. Right on. There we go. So yeah, there she's she's still working, but there yeah, it's one said, of those and, and where it's said, like, and, and as I said, Sam is still working too. So there you go. At least at least two of them got 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 out of the grip. <laughs> got out of the the yeah yeah. That's it. Yeah, and one of the I think it was the cop. Uh, uh, yeah, the Jim Cunningham. I think it was the quote unquote good cop. Uh, he went on to do a bunch of stuff as well. Only like twenty three things, but. I'll be talking about him again later this year, I think, when we're covering uh, Walk, Walking the Edge, which I think just also came out on a uh, nice Blu-ray as well. But yeah, it's one of those where it's like, okay, who went on to other things and who didn't? And it's like 90% of the cast didn't. And they're probably uh, probably a lot of like people that Fanaka knew, maybe people in theater. I mean, the guy that plays Peanuts, Charles D. Brooks III, I thought he was terrific, and I kind of was like, oh, I want to hang out with this guy. He seems so nice. Oh, and, you know, you mentioned in this word association, you mentioned walking the edge made me think of something else I briefly thought of during this, which, like, for the most part, is not similar, but I thought of walking tall and how the difference there is when a white man pisses off a bunch of white people, they just cut up his chest a bunch. That's it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> when a black go, man does it, they, they, right. they take it a lot more personal. <laughs> exactly. That's right. That's a good point. Very good. That's right. And there's no way Brother Charles is going to get to take over the uh, take over the police department. <laughs> I, I wish he would. Oh you know? man, what a <laughs> yeah! Instead, yeah, I mean, they both did walk tall and carry a big stick. <laughs> All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back with an interview with actor Sam and Graffio right after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Jules. And we do in filmographies. We've compiled a list of actors. We draw a name at random and tackle their entire acting filmography from start to finish. Or at least as much of it that still exists and hasn't been lost to time. Jason loves actor Billy Crudup in films like Jesus' Son or Almost Famous. But will he love Billy in movies like Monument Avenue or World Traveler? No, they're not good. And Jules loves actor Rada Mitchell in films like High Art and Pitch Black. But will he love Rada in movies like When Strangers Appear or Love and Other Catastrophes? You'll just have to tune in to find out. Some of the names that pop up might surprise you. Some of the films as well. So join us every Saturday on the podcast app of your choice or via YouTube as We Do in Filmographies. Tell me a little bit more about you and how did you decide to get into acting? 
basically, it kind of all starts with uh, basically what we're going to talk about, the film we're going to talk about today. I was a political science major at UCLA and was a very serious student. And then a friend of mine said that it was very easy to meet young ladies if you got into an acting class. And so when I went to UCLA, you didn't have to be a theater major or a film major in order to take acting classes. You just had to get permission of the instructor. So started taking acting classes and had a whole lot of fun and met a lot of people and didn't really seriously think about being a professional actor. I was going to either, when I graduated, I was either going to go to law school or, or business graduate school. And I ended up going to business graduate school. While I was at business graduate school, somebody that I had met at UCLA in one of the acting classes called me and he was directing a play in Los Angeles where I live. And he said, I'm having difficulty casting this very small part. Would you be willing to cover it until I get a real actor to kind of come in and do it? And I, I was on a break from school and I said, oh, sure, right, sure. Okay. Be fun. So I came in, I did the the, you know, the part I auditioned, read for him and he said, fine, you know, you, you're not so awful. You could do it. And, uh, I started working on the play and, and I think it had like a three, three or four week run. And we were, I mean, it was literally in a garage in front of seven people. And when that ended and I went back to graduate school, I was so depressed because I had been so excited being in that silly play for seven people. And I think I was I wasn't even getting paid for it. And I was more excited about that than I was about taking finals at business graduate school. And so I said, maybe I should take a, <laughs> take a look at my career choice here that I have made. And I went and talked to the dean and he was so nice. He basically said, you know, you're doing fine and you're getting good grades and you can come back if you want to take a leave. But it seems like possibly you want to be an actor and not an accountant. <laughs> that was, that was almost 50 years ago. And, um, here I am and I have serious doubts about it at times when auditions go badly or people don't treat me nicely. I think, you know, I could have been an accountant and uh, I needed a little fallback plan. Maybe I could go back to graduate school. So what were those early roles like for you? Were you then uh, doing more plays? Did you do commercials? Like what were those early roles? Oh, well, I did a ton of theater in Los Angeles. I probably won 50 or 60 plays in LA and I did summer stock and regional theater and off, off Broadway. When I was starting as an actor, it was, a, it was very cool to be a, a very angular Italian guy. As of the success of the Godfather, the kind of bad guy of the day were mafia guys. So there's a lot of roles on television for Italian bad guys. And I think I played a, a lot of, them. uh, basically I, I single-handedly, you know, forwarded the stereotype of the Italian mafia guy. I played a lot. I played drug dealers and gun runners and mafia hitmen, And, um, and, uh, that was kind of what I did for a number of years. And I got kind of pigeonholed doing that. And that was kind of how I segued into being a writer because nobody would really consider me for anything except bad guys. Cause that was basically all I had on my reel. And so my plan was I was going to write something for myself to show my amazing versatility as an actor. I started kind of, again, backed into it. Like I backed into acting with another actor friend of mine, we created two characters 
and we started going to open mic comedy clubs uh, and showcases to try and show people that first we could do comedy and second of all that we could write for ourselves. And we did that for about six months and it was like, it was very discouraging because we didn't get anything at all and we didn't get hired and we didn't get any writing jobs. We continued to do it and it was almost like uh, performance art. We, we created these two characters. We showed up in costume as the characters, signed in as the characters, and we didn't really have an act. We, we were, our characters were two guys from New Jersey who wanted to be in show business, but had no talent. So we literally read joke books on stage. We insulted the audience. We did a mind reading gig and we were, it was like awful. And we would end up yelling at each other on stage and nobody quite knew what to do with us. And a producer came, happened to be in the audience one night. It, uh, he was from Universal. And he thought we were these characters. We were Sal and Junior. And he came up afterwards and he said, I'd like to take you guys out for a drink. And we said, oh, sure. And we went out for a drink with him. And he was like shocked because we were Sal and Junior. Uh, and the next day he took us to Universal and we got a pilot development deal. We weren't going to write the pilot. Writers were going to write the pilot for us. And uh, they wrote a draft and it wasn't particularly funny. And the development people at Universal said, well, why don't you guys give them some notes to kind of punch it up? Well, we gave them pages and pages and pages of notes, which they used a lot of it in the pilot. And they said to us, you know, you could join the Writers Guild now because there's enough of your stuff in the pilot. And we had no idea what that even meant. We're like, oh yeah, we should join the Writers Guild because then we'll be writers. And so we joined the Writers Guild, forked out all this money, joined the Writers Guild, and had absolutely no clue what we were doing. That pilot didn't sell. They came up with another draft of the pilot that didn't sell. Then we wrote a pilot based on the characters, and that didn't sell. But Universal liked us so much that they gave us a development deal and said, come up with funny stuff, and if you if it sells, you know, you'll be the writer-producer. So for almost a year, we had an office at Universal, and we tried to come up with funny, funny ideas that we would pitch to the people in the Black Tower, and most of them got rejected, and some of them some of them we got paid to write a script and some of them we didn't, you know, never went anywhere. But that was kind of how we started. And we wrote together, my partner Gary Stein and I wrote together for 12 years and we made a pretty decent living. And if you look at, uh, on my credits, my acting credits on IMDb, there's, there's a big break for about 10 years where I don't have any acting credits. And I actually had somebody who was interviewing me say, you know, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but like, did you have a drug problem or did you go to jail? You know, what happened to you for 10 years? <laughs> I'm like, well, sorry to disappoint you, but I didn't go to jail, but I was, I was working as a writer. Um, and then the two of us went our separate ways. And then I kind of started to focus back on acting again. And then I, I'd always wanted to be a film actor and write screenplays. That was always my dream. And so, at that point, I said to my wife, you know, I've made a fair amount of money writing television and a fair amount of money as an actor. I think I'm going to try something really dumb now and I'm going to try and be a screenwriter. 
So I formed a production company with another partner and, um, we started making, uh, independent films and internet series and short films. And I've been doing that and then acting again. Um, you know, my focus has been on acting and, and now because I have white hair, uh, now I can play doctors and lawyers and CEOs and things like that. And what I never did when I first started as an actor, a friend of mine was made a lot of money doing commercials and she set up an interview for me with a commercial agent, a really good commercial agent. And I went in for the meeting and I literally sat down and, uh, he said, well, nice to meet you. And, uh, uh, you know, what are your goals? And I said, well, I, I'd like to do commercials. You know, that's not my primary focus, but I would really like to do it. And he said, well, with a face like yours, you're not going to sell a lot of dog food. And, and I had no idea what that happened. And, and this was in the early eighties. And what he was saying to me is that unless you had blue eyes and looked you know, like the arrow shirt guy where we were very kind of uh, waspy looking. There wasn't a lot of stuff in commercials for that. And now that has all completely changed, which is lovely for me because I'm now making more money doing commercials than anything else. Um, they're like money making machines, you know, uh, people have figured out that I'm sort of funny. And so now I play kind of funny bad guys or the, the grandpa who's a little nuts or, and, and it's been great. I think I've done like a dozen commercials in the last four or five years and COVID obviously put a big dent in that. Now things are again, picking up again. So that's kind of my life story. I'm kind of backed into acting, backed into writing and uh, have done okay. Are you making more money in commercials than you are from your two books? I mean, are you just raking in royalties? I'm making so much money from my, my books that I don't even know how to spend it past them. No, I mean, the second one is actually doing pretty well. The first one was hard because you have no name recognition and, you know, you're just somebody among the other millions of books. But when you have a second book, then you have a little bit of credibility. And so it's actually, and I, I learned a lot from the first book about how to market and promote and do all that stuff. So now I'm working on the third book because once you have three with the same central character, then basically you have a series. Series uh, then gives you a lot more leverage. You know, the, the, the short answer is you don't make a lot of money from the, the book publishing game, uh, unless you're James Patterson or something. Tell me, how did you get involved with Welcome Home Brother Charles? And was it called that when you were shooting it? No, it wasn't called, I, you know, it was funny. I was, I mean, it's almost 50 years ago now. So I was trying to remember, I know it wasn't Welcome Home Brother Charles. The director was Walt Gordon when I met him. He was not Jim Afanaka. He was Walt Gordon when I first met him. But I don't, I know it had a different title, but I don't remember what the title was. Was it Soul Vengeance? That sounds right. Yes. That sounds, that sounds right because it was kind of a very political time. You know, this was like 73 or 74 and there was racial tension and a lot of stuff going on. And, and I remember there was a directing class at UCLA that you had to take if you were going to get your advanced degree in film and Jamal was going to UCLA and he had a little group of kind of very political filmmakers that he was, he was friends with. And so the teacher who taught the class 
her name was Delia Savvy, and she liked me as an actor. So she had recommended me to a lot of uh, the directors who came into the class. So I ended up doing a lot of scene work in the class, and that was how I met him. And I don't think I had to audition for him because I don't remember auditioning. Um, I think he just gave me the part. And it was supposed to be like we were supposed to be like wet redneck white cops who were going to run around and chase um, the, I, I, was his name? I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name. He had a strange name. Marlo, he was a young black man, African-American man, and he was kind of like the intense bad guy in it. And we were supposed to chase him around with guns and say, stop or I'll shoot. And uh, that was kind of how it started. And I was so excited because I had done some short student films, but this was like a real movie. This was like they there were actors in the movie who had actually been on television. They weren't students. They were like real actors. And I remember the thing that was most exciting, I hadn't done anything on film where I had gotten a costume. And they were going to give me a costume to wear. And they had a wardrobe person who took measurements. And, and it was like, holy mackerel, this is like the big time. I'm, they're they're going to give me something to wear. We were filming on campus. And there was a point where they told us to show up. And I don't know if you're familiar with UCLA, but there's a, a big building called Bunch Hall, which is a big brown multi-story building, very modern. And they said, okay, we're going to meet there. So we all met there and they had the camera and a couple of lights. And Paul Pizer was a friend of mine who wasn't an actor. He was kind of a good looking blonde haired guy. And I, <laughs> I said, you know, they need like a blonde haired guy to be the other cop, to be in kind of contrast to me. Cause I had very dark hair at the time, very thick, curly, dark hair. So he said, will they pay me? And I said, I don't, I don't think they're going to pay you, but they'll give you like lunch. <laughs> You know, and you'll get to be in a movie. And he was like, yeah, okay. So he showed up and he brought a camera and I was trying to find him today. He took pictures of us. And, and I think I've, you know, over the course of the last 50 years, I probably have moved a dozen times and somewhere in my house now are those pictures, but I couldn't find. There were two pictures of me in my policeman uniform looking very intense, holding this gun. I had that, those pictures for years. And I actually think I actually used them as acting shots for a time. So we show up and, uh, Jamal says, okay, here's what, you know, we're going to shoot you guys up on the balcony up there looking down, and then you're going to run down the stairs and you're going to start yelling, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So they say, yeah, go in the bathroom and change into the cop uniforms. So Paul and I go into the bathroom and we're changing into our cop uniforms. They have the gun belts and the guns and the whole thing. So we change into our uniforms. We come out, we look really cool. Uh, he takes pictures of us. We go up on the balcony. They shoot us up on the balcony. We come running down and the campus police are there and the campus police say, somebody just saw you in the bathroom changing into a policeman uniform. What are you doing? And we're like, we're making a movie. There's, there's the camera, there's the lights. And, you know, I, I can't speak for any other campus policeman, but at the time 
the campus police at UCLA were very intense because a lot of them had wanted to be LAPD, hadn't made the cut. And so they were, they were not the easiest guys to get along with. And they started to give Jamal a lot of attitude about, you know, because I think he was a black man and it was like, okay, you know, he, you know, before long it had escalated to, can't you believe that I'm a director because I'm black? <laughs> it's like, uh-oh, we're going in a direction that we may not want to go here. And he trying to explain to them that he's shooting a film and he's a student at UCLA and they say, well, where's your permit? Turns out he didn't have a permit and he hadn't talked to anybody in the film department. So then they say, okay, you're under arrest. And we say, he's like, what do you mean? You're, I'm a filmmaker. And I said, you're under arrest. And so they take Paul, me and Jamal and they take us, they didn't put us in handcuffs. The police station is not actually on campus. It's a little ways down Westwood Boulevard, about a half mile away from the campus. So they walk us down off the campus, put us in the car and drive us to the police station. They didn't, I don't know if the police station actually has cells, but they didn't put us in a cell. They held us there and said, you have to get out of the police uniform, put on your own clothes. We put on our own clothes and they, and they book us for carrying a gun on a college campus and impersonating a police officer, both of which are felony offenses. <laughs> and we're like, holy, well, you can't do this. And then they say, we're going to hold you until somebody can come and get you because we don't want to, we're not going to let you leave the station. So I have to call my father and call my dad and, and tell him I've, I've been arrested and can you please come and get me? So he, he goes, well, what did you do? And I said, working in a movie and they arrested me, just come and get me. So he, he comes and gets me. And when he shows up at the police station, they tell him your son has been arrested for impersonating an officer and carrying a gun on campus. And he goes crazy and starts screaming at him. What are you nuts? <laughs> You're arresting my son for this. He's an actor. He's trying to make a movie. So. They let us go, and then my dad, bless his heart, he's gone now, but bless his heart, he he stayed on it for probably six months because he said, you know, you cannot have on your record that you were arrested on campus for carrying a gun and impersonating a police officer. And so finally, he got the chief of police of the, of the campus police to write a letter saying that it was all a misunderstanding and that it was, you know, wiped from my record. And they gave uh, him a letter on the stationery of the university police saying, explaining that if anybody heard about this or mentioned anything about it, that it was all a mistake. And so uh, I, I think I actually worked on the movie for about 45 minutes <laughs> before I, I was arrested. Uh, but that was literally my, my, I mean, I consider it a professional acting job. I didn't get paid anything for, but I mean, it was a real movie that got released in theaters. I, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. I don't think I, cause I did see clips of it when he was editing stuff, but I don't think I ever saw the, the actual movie. You didn't get invited to the premiere? No, I, I so no, yeah. although it, it was interesting, I did run into him 
uh, later, it's a mile later, I was doing a play at the Inner City Cultural Center. We were doing The Great White Hope, and Ernie Hudson played Jack Johnson, and apparently he knew uh, Ernie Hudson. And so he came to one of the performances, and we chatted afterwards, and um, you know, and had a lovely conversation. And unfortunately, he died very young. He made a number of films, and was actually doing doing well as a filmmaker uh, in, in that genre. And then he died very young for the genre he was working in, and the fact that he didn't have a lot of money to work with. I think he was a talented a talented director who probably is time changed and and black people were allowed to like kind of move up in the industry as a, as a director i think he would have done well his career would have gone gone well you have been in so many things over the years i mean <laughs> what are some of your favorite things that you've been in well that's a hard question to answer because there's a lot of different like um the, the feature film the falcon and the snowman is probably my favorite uh, it was such a pleasure to work with Sean Penn and an incredible cast, a great script. John Schlesinger, that was, again, that was the reason it sticks out in my head is because, I, like I said, I had done a lot of bad, I shouldn't say bad, but I had done a lot of episodic television. And that was the first time I ever had a meeting with a director where he, they called me and, and I came in and I met with him. And, you know, he's an Academy Award winning director and I'm sitting across the desk from him and he's chatting with me. I'm, no, here's the sides. Can you audition? Can you read? You know, he's asking me questions about my life and my family and kind of getting to know me. And I'm so nervous that I'm like, I'm, 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 uh, I can't think of anything interesting to say or clever. Way. And it, I know it's going really badly. And so I finally say, Mr. Schlesinger, I know this is going to sound weird, but I'm so nervous because I want to be in this movie so badly that I know I'm blowing it. Could we start all over again? <laughs> you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time with me, but could we just start over again and I'll, I'll, I'll try to be more interesting. And he started to laugh and he said, well, you know, and he's English and, I'm, and you know what I do when I'm in a meeting and I'm going to be nervous. I, I wear a lapel pin, and then when I sit down, it never fails. The person says, oh, what is that lapel pin about? And then we have a conversation, and it's going, but then it breaks the ice, and we have something to talk about. So now, obviously, every meeting I have gone to for the last 40 years, I have a drawer full of lapel pins, and I wear a lapel pin, and it never fails. Because the person you're talking to is usually as nervous or more nervous than you are. And they always say, oh, that's an interesting lapel pin. What does that mean? Oh, I was in Italy and I thought it was really cool. And it represents the families of the, the you know, that founded the, you know, and suddenly you're not saying, well, I started, I, I, as an actor and blah, blah, blah. And I, I, this is my credits and I'd like to talk, you know, you know, it's like, it relaxes everybody in the room, and suddenly it's a whole different meeting. And then when I, I luckily got the job, and I, no one was more shocked than me than when I got the job, but I got the job. And the thing that was remarkable is I got to work on the film for like three weeks, and he, he's the only director to this day that I've ever worked with. He never even looked through the lens. 
they didn't have video monitors then. You actually had to look through the eyepiece to see how the shot was set up. And he would sit in a chair like he was watching the play and never look through the lens of the camera, the eyepiece of camera. And then after we fell, very nice, very nice, lovely. And he would come up to me and he would whisper something to me and say, let's do it again. And we would do it again. And that would be a different scene because I was the other actor I was playing with. He didn't hear the direction, so he couldn't anticipate what I was going to do. And then, oh, lovely, very nice, 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 nice. Let's try it one more time. And now he'd go to the other actor and whisper something to them. And I didn't know, so I had to really pay attention and listen. And it was just a really, really nice. And then he was so sweet, he wrote me a letter on his own personal stationery to say what a nice job I had done in the movie. And I still have that framed in my office. It was just a really remarkable job. And then flash forward to a year and a half ago working on Barry. When I went to audition for that, they said, okay, they gave me the scenes to read. And they said, when you finish the scene, improvise, keep going, don't stop. So I have a lot of stage background and I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, this is very rare in television because usually, particularly when the producer is also the writer, they don't like actors to make the scene funnier. Uh, it's basically, you know, don't improvise or you're asking for trouble. And they said, oh no, improvise. We want you to do that. So we did it like two or three times and I improvised every time I get the job. I show up the first day. And uh, we do the first take. Okay, great. Then Alec Berg, who's one of the creators of the show and also one of the writers of the show, walks over and to the other actor and whispers something in his ear. Okay, you know, 40 years later or whatever, I'm still in the same, I'm doing the same gig. And sure enough, Anthony, who plays no Hank, said different lines. So now I had to like come up with something to kind of work with him, you know, because, okay, still within the context of the scene, still about the same stuff, but now you're, you're, you know, okay, I got to come up with something new and different. And we did it about 10 times and it was, you know, then we took a break and it was very nice as I was walking out of the soundstage to get a cup of coffee, Alec came up to me and said, you know, nice job. Good job. You know, and that's kind of like the ultimate gig if for an actor is if getting paid is important, but it's really nice when somebody that you respect says, good job. That was, you know, a lot of actors would have got thrown by that. Those two, I mean, there's been a lot of jobs and there's been nice moments getting to go to a great location, you know, getting to go to Mexico City was very interesting and very cool. Getting to go to Canada was very nice, very cool, absolutely wonderful. You know, meeting Al Lewis, who was grandpa on the Munsters and getting to work with him. All these great character actors that I've met over the years. I was working on a film and there's a, a an extra kind of sitting there and he's probably in his, uh, you know, 70s and maybe 80s, sitting there very politely. And I sat down and we started to chat and this was in Arizona and he was like, and I, I said, you know, do you live around here? And he said, oh yeah, I moved. I used to live in Hollywood for years, but I moved uh, to Arizona for, to retire. And I said, oh, were you an actor? Yeah, I was an actor. Course of the conversation, we find out that he was 
he was the straight man in all of W.C. Fields' movies. He's in the famous dentist scene. And he's like, well, yeah, I was in the dentist. I'm like, you were in the dentist scene? You're the one that feels kind of pulls all around the chair as he's yanking your teeth out. And he's like, yeah, I knew W.C. He called him Bill. I knew Bill from Vaudeville. And we just kind of started working together. You know, in those moments like that, you know, where you just kind of go, what a, what a cool... I couldn't have done this if I was an accountant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's moments like that, that, you know, over the course of the years where you just kind of go, you know, I'm, I, that's, I'm a lucky guy. I was, that was really fun. And the fact that I still get excited, you know, I, I had a job not too long ago and, you know, I don't need an alarm clock to, to get up in the morning. I, I, <laughs> I still, I wake up and I'm excited to get there and they, uh, you know, it's it's very funny when you get to a certain age where they don't give me a lot of makeup anymore, which is really interesting because they kind of say, well, you know, I don't think you need, I don't think you need much. And the things, you know, they're, they're pretty much kind of politely saying it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> uh, there's not much I can do with you there, my friend. Uh, <laughs> we do a uh, podcast also about... Um, Marty Miller. And I know you were on a couple episodes of that. What was your experience like on that one? Again, that was one of very early on, uh, in my acting career. And I was very excited to be on it because it was a kind of a hot show at the time. And they, they shot it in front of a live audience, which was very interesting. And I had done a lot of stage, but it was still a little intimidating. The second episode was easier. The first episode, it was a little intimidating because you're not the star of the show. So they kind of put you in a green room and green room and kind of keep you there. And then they say, okay, we're ready for your, it's like doing a soap opera. They kind of park you someplace. So they know that you're not going to run away or get lost or do something silly. So you just stay there. And then they basically say, okay, we're ready for your scene. And they put you backstage and you're, you know, you got to enter through this door and somebody gives you the cue and you, you know, you're, you're off to the races and you know, there's a, a thousand people sitting in the audience. <laughs> and it's interesting because the energy for a, a sitcom is even higher than it is for doing stage work. Um, there's stage sitcom and then, I don't know, Nickelodeon or something. <laughs> I can't say it was intimidating because everybody on the show could not have been nicer. They're uh, just really, really nice almost all of them are from New York and had a stage background. So they were the actors and the crew. Very, very nice. Um, Danny Arnold was a interesting, interesting character, kind of a throwback to the old days of Neil Simon and stuff. He actually, I think wrote with Neil Simon for a while. And, you know, he was like a real wordsmith who, you know, set up, set up, joke, set up, set up, joke, set up, set up, joke. He was a real master. So that, that was a, that I'd forgotten about that. I mean, it's funny. <laughs> I, I've done so many television shows that I get residual checks and I forgot <laughs> beauty and the beast. When did I do beauty and the beast? I don't, know. <laughs> I don't even remember that one, but okay. I see your Star Trek figures back there. Are you a big Star Trek fan? 
you know, I don't want to offend people, but no, I'm not. But it was very <laughs> funny. I was working on a working on a movie, and the director is a huge Star Trek fan. And I had given him so much abuse for being a Star Trek fan. And his wife was like, yeah, you tell him he's like a grown man. He's got all these Star Trek figures. How ridiculous is that? So, And so when, when I was finished, when I was going to the airport to come home, he said, and this is for you, a Star Trek figure. So <laughs> how I can give you a, a lot of uh, heat for having Star Trek figures. I, I have, uh, you know, as you can obviously see, I have a ton of toys and, and collectibles and all that stuff. I just never became a, I, I like Star Trek, the television show and the movies for whatever reason, collecting that stuff never really appealed to me. Collecting Pez dispensers <laughs> to me makes much more sense than collecting Star Trek uh, figures. <laughs> well, I see you've even got, uh, Al Lewis behind you, the bobblehead. And now he was a trip. He was. He was a trip to work with. Very, very funny. Very. I mean, my stomach hurt at the at the end of the day. My stomach would would hurt uh, working with him and Jack Warden. That's right. You worked on used cars. Yeah, I, and that was one of my first acting jobs. I think I had three lines, one scene, but there was Al Lewis and Jack Warden at the hotel. They picked me up at the hotel. Al Lewis and Jack Warden are in the back seat of the car, and I'm in the. So I say to myself, all right, I got to say something to them. So I turn to Al Lewis and I go, you know, I love you on the Munsters and blah, blah, blah. It's just going to be a real treat. And I turn to Jack Warden and I say, and, you know, I have to say, it's just an honor to work with you. You've been in so many great films. I'm just thrilled to work with you. And he looks at me and goes, who the fuck cares? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, and I turn around sitting in the car now, and the driver doesn't say anything, and I'm sitting there totally humiliated, and I, I just don't know what to do now. <laughs> then I feel this hand on my shoulder going, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. And for the rest of the time that I was in Arizona with them, I, I was the butt of all of their jokes. These are moments that you kind of go, how lucky am I? Jack Warden goes, you know, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, I, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in Phoenix by myself at a hotel. What am I going to be doing? He's like, you want to come to dinner with me and Al? And I'm like, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. And so I go to dinner with Al Lewis and Jack Warden, and we're hanging out, eating dinner. And they're telling, they knew each other for years in New York, and they were both lifeguards at the YMCA. <laughs> and Al Lewis was a circus clown for a while and uh, just, uh, I mean, amazing stories, could not have been nicer, and then paid for my dinner. And then the next day I show up and and because people have seen the next morning, I'm like, they're my two best buddies now. We're hanging around, we're drinking coffee, we're joking around, and somebody comes up to me. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. Somebody comes up and asks for Al Lewis and Jack's autograph, and I'm standing there. They, they say, could we have your autograph too? And I say, uh, you, I don't know if you really want my autograph yet. And I'm starting to explain that I'm not a very successful actor and you won't know who I am in Jack Ward. He goes, just sign a goddamn autograph. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
you know, so it was, it was just, a, again, those are moments where, you know, I didn't get paid a real lot of money and I, I don't do a whole lot in the movie, but those are moments that, you know, I, I treasured because I mean, how cool was that to get to, I, and again, I work with all these young actors and they go, you know, well, what's the secret? You've been working forever, huh? <laughs> you know? And I say, the secret is show up on time and be nice. You know, all up on time and be, be nice. Um, you know, don't be a jerk. I, I work with so many actors who are just jerks who basically show up unprepared, expect people to, you know, cater to them. And it's like, you know, come on. It, it's, you're not breaking rocks in the hot sun. You know, you're, you're an actor, you know, it's like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. Yeah. You know, yeah. You worked a 12 hour day, but you only actually worked 45 minutes. It's like, you know, I mean, come on, be realistic, be polite. When they ask you to do something, don't give them attitude. And, you know. and the other, the other tip is move to Georgia. <laughs> Move to Georgia because it's much cheaper than Los Angeles and uh, there's a lot more work there. So you've got the third book coming out. What else are you working on? Oh, a bunch of stuff. I, I have, I think, three screenplays that my agent has got out and about. Um, I have a, a television pilot that I wrote with uh, with two other writers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm never, I'm always working on something. That was also something I learned very early on. You can't just have one project. You have to. You have to have multiple projects. You have to always be hustling. You know, I've done okay. I've made a nice living as a writer and an actor, but you know, it's, it's a constant hustle. And if you're not hustling, you're dead. I mean, literally, uh, I mean, I, I, I've gone to parties and run into people and they're, I mean, they're trying to be polite, but they're like, are you retired? <laughs> it's like, no, uh, I don't think so. Because I, I took some time off, you know, I, I was relaxing, uh, you know, I have a family, I had a life, I went on vacation, uh, and you know, you go away for a little while and people, there's a lot of other office here and I'm in my, I pretend that I have a job. I'm in my office by eight 30. Uh, I take a lunch break at 12 o'clock for a half hour. And then I work from, you know, like one o'clock till probably three or four. You know, so it's like, and I do that five days a week. Uh, and so I'm, if nothing else, I am prolific. Mr. Ingrafia, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right, we are back and we're talking about Welcome Home, Brother Charles. Now, you guys mentioned that you had seen the penitentiary films. I've not seen either of those. How how are they? Should I be checking those out immediately? I would think so. I would I would say so. Sure. Absolutely. I, I've been thinking about revisiting them. I meant to before this, but I just hadn't had the time. I only saw the first two. I know there's three. But the second one in particular is wild. It was kind of what got me turned on to it in the first place. Just finding out like, oh, there's a violent ass movie with Mr. T in it. <laughs> Cause, and it's a very early Ernie Hudson role too. He's, I think he's the bad guy in it. It's a pretty, it's, it's wild. The first one is, is pretty good. The second one is crazy. And 
I haven't heard a lot about the third, so but yeah, I think I, you're I, think, right, I, think, I, I think I fell off too. I don't think I ever saw the. Th- I think the third got 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 really mixed reviews, and I think yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I think I honestly think those movies might be right up your alley, Mike. <laughs> That's right. No, but de- but I agree. The definitely the first two, kind of like Godfather Three, how it kind of yeah. hangs out there by <laughs> itself. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. definitely the yeah, because I think it came out a bit later. That's right. That's right. There's a this there's, there's a there's some weird gap between. Uh, two and three. And then he had one more called Street Wars at the end, which I haven't heard anything about that one. Yeah, I think I tried to see it somewhere or tried to hunt it down at one point and I wasn't able to. And then the Vinegar Syndrome, when they put this one out, when they put out Welcome Home, Brother Charles, they also included Emma Ray, or sorry, Emma May on there as well. Yeah, that's, by the way, that's, that, that's been shown on TCM. In fact, that's where I saw it. That's got a different name as well. That's like, soul sisters revenge or something like that i can't remember what it is yeah because because this one when i watched oh i what before i got the um uh vinegar syndrome disc i watched the xenon version which has that horrible chiron title of soul vengeance at the beginning <laughs> yeah i i was lucky to to find that that i mean like god bless vinegar syndrome <laughs> the things yeah. that they will dig up and make look better than you know anything you've ever seen when we're still in a world where you can't even get a, a proper hd copy of like true lies or the abyss <laughs> right right mm-hmm. oh sorry it was black sisters revenge black is sisters what it was revenge. called sure. that's interesting yeah yeah i think that, I, I think on TCM they, they used the, the original title i seem to recall yeah uh, yeah and i also noticed yep the uh the one short film the the alternate title that he made was death on the installment plan and that like one of the best lines i think in this movie is with the line about him, you know, doing time on the white man's installment plan. <laughs> yeah. There's some really clever lines in here. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. It, it feels like I'm not supposed to like this movie. It feels like, Oh, it's too rough. And just, you know, like the whole thing we're talking about with like the confusion around what happens first. And does he actually get castrated? I, yeah. There's some problems here, but I, you know, I've seen a lot worse, man. I've seen a whole lot worse. And I just think that the themes of this, and I always enjoy this whole thing of like the guy who gets out of jail and goes after all the people that put him away. I mean, we've seen that trope in so many movies. And right. never like this. Never <laughs> like this. You know? Oh, that's right. That's right, man. That's right. <laughs> I, but could you see, no, really, can you see like, <laughs> you know, trying to pitch this to a room of women executives. So look, <laughs> it's a guy, see, and, uh, and they try to and they try to castrate him. Only it doesn't work, and uh, and the and this through radiation, some other mystical means, he gets this massive cock. <laughs> oh baby, oh yeah. Well, get out, get out now. You got to have the balls of like, like sorry to bother you, and that takes that takes a lot of build up. To <laughs> you've got you've got to set that tone early and just get weirder from there. And <laughs> this movie does not have. Any interest in setting that tone? <laughs> it just comes as such a surprise when it starts happening. Yeah, because like I said, so much of it is you know slice of life stuff. You know, just just like a, a like legitimate drama, like the the stuff with like him and the girlfriend, like the the one scene where they're you know they're, like they have like a tender love making sequence oh, and everything. Yeah, the whole red suit thing. Yeah, and and you know it's so it like it feels so real and human, and it, I mean it also kind of when she put on the record though I couldn't help but think of. The Kentucky Fried movie, that joyous sex sequence. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it, it, it feels, you know, like the fact that the movie takes time 
to show you like the human side, the the fact that like that it's not just an element of destruction in his pants. Like, yeah, it could be used for good and for and, and, exactly. And evil. That's it. There you yeah. go. That's it. That's it. Well, that, that's it. That's the duality that you can you can bring out in the in the, in the remake. What we also end the movie on, which I'll just refer to as the love theme from Welcome Home, Brother Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a lost art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was looking for it because there's like two or two songs, I think, that play throughout the film. Um, and I was looking for those someplace, but could not find anything, not even on like Discogs or anything. I'm trying to remember because there's the theme that I was talking about with like, it almost sounds like horns or like almost like fog horns in it. And then it sounds like, I don't know, um, hyenas laughing or something. It's just really kind of strange. But then, yeah, there's two songs by Andre Douglas and the gliders. And, uh, yeah, I think it's imagine is the love theme. And then there's another one called junkies pimps. And I was looking for those out of 45 or something. And no, no, oh, luck. Man, that's too bad. That's great. I could, great. I could find music from top of the heap, yes. uh, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, this That's being yeah, yeah, a student film, like, yeah, the distribution couldn't, and then just getting the rights to stuff, like, who exactly. knows? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Okay. And I was right. thinking, like, how many, how many, like, full-on student films by notable filmmakers are, like, actually out there and successful on their own? Because I could think of, like, this, there's Cannibal the Musical, and I can't think of much else. THX, wasn't that uh, Lucas's student film? There was a version that was for like that was a a student film that he played but then this was actually the the theatrical version was actually warner brothers put that out and that was all because of um francis ford coppola almost forgot dark star there is dark star that doctor, that's right dark star. <laughs> oh yeah yeah because right. i was thinking right. my mind immediately went to el mariachi but brad Riquez wasn't in school yeah he, he just was, did it on his own <laughs> he was just putting himself through medical tests for fun exactly to make a movie. <laughs> exactly that's right that's crazy. I know. That's, that's no funny to think about that. And then he remade, he remade it, right, with Banderas? Is that correct? Well, it's supposed to be a sequel. It's because cause it, it, it flashes back to the end of the first movie, but but yeah, it kind of just feels like it, you know, it's almost telling the same story. It's like Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's it. There you go. All right. It took me a little bit to get that when I was watching it the first time, uh, Desperado, and I was like, oh, wait, wait. No, he's a big Raimi fan. This is like Evil Dead 2. You know, like, why would he go back to the to the cabin? Yeah, that's that one scene where he has the flashback to getting shot in the hand, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, and that original dude actually shows up there at the end with, like, the three mariachis. Yes, and, I, do, I recall that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I wish they would have, like, gotten a, branched off and done, like, oh, and here's the third mariachi story instead of Once Upon a Time in Mexico, which I was not a fan of. Which, uh, I was, yeah, it's a very strange film. That is, a, talk about strange films, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I liked it at the time, but it's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I think just the uh, Tarantino cameo just kind of soured it for me. Yeah, you got a little more history there than we do. <laughs> That's it. That's it. There you go. I don't know, man. I, I You know, uh, I, I got to be careful with my words. Every, every word I say is kind of innuendo, and I don't mean it to be, but but really, I think it's just planted in me, man, that it's like, I, I don't know, man, just or just the idea that I could, you could do it as a graphic novel or maybe as a, you know, a kind of like a crazy, you know, like in the days of Holloway House, you could do a kind of Holloway House kind of this lurid, you know, paperback original and really kind of, you know, crank it up as we've talked about, you know, in terms of just the, uh, you know, the strangeness of it and, and all that. And maybe that's the way to do it is, is 
if you put it, it just on paper, maybe you're, maybe you're safer than that imagery. I'm not sure. <laughs> Convincing a whole crew to go on that journey with you and get the money. That's the hard yeah, part. <laughs> that's the hard part. That's right. That's the hard part. That's right. That's but if right. you're putting yeah. it all on paper yourself, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> that's it. There you go. That's right. If you don't want to read it, go ahead. You want to burn it? Go on. Go on, burn it. I'll make them. Yeah. You got to still buy it to burn it. So that's all right with me. That's it. And that way you don't have to worry about special effects and how they look either. So you really go places with that. You know, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you what you're working on, but I think I just found your new project for you. So that's it. Well, I just, I just got to ask, like, what the hell did Chinese food ever do to that man? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What was that about? You're right. That was like that whole wedding thing. You're right. That's right, Jay. I forgot about that. That was strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was like, Yo, what the heck? Really? <laughs> Go on, man. <laughs> it's it. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. jamais de questions parce que soit je mens, soit je ne réponds pas. Enfin, tu me dis rien, dis-moi des choses, merde. Moi, je voudrais savoir, je voudrais comprendre ce qui m'arrive. That's right. We are starting off French month next month with a look at Barbe Schroeder's Matrice. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Gary and Jackie. So, Jackie, what has been keeping you busy lately? Uh, you know, just life. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's been a while since I've made a, a proper foray into the uh, the internet as any kind of personality. This, uh, although I'm hoping to do a bit more of it soon. I've been working as uh, the events manager here at the Alamo Draft House in the Houston area. So that keeps me busy because I work up in, we are actually right now live from a projection booth because it was the quietest place I could think of. Busy round the clock, just getting good movies out there and making sure people have fun. But uh, hopefully, uh, good friend Chris Stash, who's trying to get me back on his show. I hope to be on there very soon again. Uh, I'm actually working on of all things, an album uh, of sort of, I'm, I'm joining on a project. It's not my project because uh, I know a bunch of guys involved in like the old retro game scene. There's an old PC game called The Seventh Guest and they're doing an uh, album, uh, sort of a, a reimagining the music from that. And it's an incredible soundtrack. So uh, the, their band is called Error 47 and I'm going to be 
uh, contributing vocals to the songs on that. So I'm really excited about that because that's just it. Like the music to that game was the first time I heard anything on that medium that sounded like real music. <laughs> And it's, it's an incredible, like, it's exciting to be part of that, that kind of project. And I'm kind of hoping to get more, more stuff like that out there too. I just want to get more active with the arts wherever I can, <laughs> because yeah, it's, you know, I, I miss it. It's, it's so much fun to create. And Gary, how about yourself? Oh, I, I, I uh, you know, I had a novel out last year, One Shot Harry. And so I've now been kind of going through, uh, which is very, I have some very good comments from my editor. So we kind of been, you know, doing the tweaks and uh, rewrites and uh, revisions on that. So that's been, I've been pretty happy um, with how that's gone. And then um, working on a couple of comic book projects, uh, including something for, well, I guess while the doors stay open, uh, uh, Comixology Originals, which now is kind of has all across the, the, the table at Amazon. Uh, but in particular, our, our project, I guess, is, well, we still have money there. <laughs> and uh, it's taking a character of mine, uh, this outlaw character, Martha Cheney, that I've written a couple of books about, uh, novels about in the past, and now kind of transporting her, transforming her into the realm of comics. I've been kind of, uh, we got this great artist, uh, Adriana uh, Mello, who's uh, uh, Brazilian, and she's just fantastic. And so I've been having a great, great time, uh, you know, working on that. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Don't want to see
Go. Oh.